we are back for part two of our 15-minute medicine series on early childhood interventions, where today we'll be looking at nutrition in childhood. My name's Krithi Ravi, and I'm very grateful to be invited back to join my co-host, Farai Chigamadzi, on this podcast uh, series. So, in our last podcast episode, uh, we looked at early childhood education, and we tied it together at the end by talking about how education and health are these two pillars of um, human capital. And now we're going to potentially explore a common denominator to both of them, which is early childhood nutrition. Before we dive into that, Fry, would you mind just recapping the concept of the first thousand days? So the first thousand days is the time being from conception to the end of the second year of life. This has been seen as a very important period in life because it is here where if you implement certain interventions, um, such as healthy nutrition um, and ensuring proper development, that a person, not just a child, can have benefit throughout their life. By the way, we've taken this concept, we didn't mention this before, but from the 2008 Lancet series of maternal and child malnutrition. That's great. Thank you, Farai. So the reason we keep banging on about it is because we want to emphasize that when we say early childhood, we don't just mean from the point of delivery onwards. This looking at early childhood nutrition requires, again, a life course approach from the nutrition of the mother before she conceives the child. Is she Has she been optimized for pregnancy? Is she old enough? You know, has she had access to all the sexual and reproductive health education that she needs to make choices? Is she optimally, uh, does she have optimal nutrition to allow conception? Does she have optimal nutrition during her pregnancy? Are there any other factors that she's at risk of which could influence in uh, sort of in utero nutrition? You know, conditions like uh, which may affect the blood flow to the developing fetus and thereby compromise nutrition such as preeclampsia. Um, and then we've got the delivery stage. Um, you know, the, the, does the mother have opportunities for a safe birth? Does she have all of the information she needs to uh, to breastfeed her child? You know, exclusive breastfeeding is recommended by the WHO until six months of age. And if she is HIV positive, does she have all the information she needs to make safe choices for you know, in regard to that. And following on from that, we've got weaning off off of breast milk and to solid foods. Are, are, are all the food groups available to children in early childhood? So yeah, it's um, this is what this is why the sort of conceptualization of the first thousand days is, is is really quite relevant in this context. So when we talk about malnutrition, what first comes to your mind, Farai? I hate this because whenever we talk, when a question is asked, I feel like I'm back in that exam situation and I'm freezing all over again. I'm having this oh, no. post-traumatic well, trauma. Oh, um, no. Well, what's the first thing? What's the first thing that pops? Because I'm, I'm interested in people's sort of inherent reactions. So malnutrition obviously is when someone's not able to get all the nutrients that are needed to kind of grow and develop into an, a healthy individual. I'm okay. by using the word nourish, but yeah, that's my Yeah, my okay. 
that's okay. That's a very clever definition because you've sort of I, I it laid out a trap for you and then you didn't fall into it, which was that when when a lot of people think of malnutrition, I think they think of undernutrition. But you clearly refer to sort of people not getting all the nutritions that they require. So I guess the first point that we'd like to make during this podcast is that childhood malnutrition consists of both undernutrition and overnutrition. So the UNICEF says that nearly half of all deaths in children under five are attributable to undernutrition. And the things that they think are happening to uh, to cause this are things like undernutrition, putting kids at greater risk of dying from common infections, increasing the frequency and severity of such infections and delaying recovery. And they also sort of talk about the interaction between undernutrition and infection and this vicious cycle of worsening illness and deteriorating nutritional status. So I don't know if any of you have ever seen someone who's suffering from really bad sort of chronic infection, someone with inflammatory bowel disease with chronic pelvic sepsis or things like that, for example, or um, an HIV positive patient. But more often than not, I think they look cachectic. What do you think, Farai? I was actually going to ask you, how often in your your experience do you see people like this? With uh, the sort of worsening cycle of children, perhaps not so many, actually. Mm -hmm. I think the UK is relatively protected from having the infection-related sort of mortality and morbidity burden because um, of our vaccine programme, but also uh, primary health care and... Yeah, I think, and also because of the fact that it's a, it's a high-income country. Do you often, do, do you think infection, mortality, morbidity is quite a big sort of childhood? childhood? So in childhood, I'm, I'm happy to say that I don't think it's terrible. I don't even think it's bad. But mm. you, do, you do tend to see um, the odd child come in here and there. Um, and normally it's, it's more of a case of a very disruptive family structure. So it's not just a case of, uh, it's not necessarily a case of inaccessibility to healthcare. It's kind of a, a case of child neglect, the combination of child neglect, HIV and AIDS, possibly other um, conditions. And then you mm-hmm. might see a case of yeah, someone who's severely acutely malnourished. But yeah. I can definitely say it's not something that it's often seen. Often seen. But I've definitely seen it in adults, though. I've definitely seen, you know, people with adults with chronic infection being mm. cathetic and looking like they're not nutritionally optimised, for, for sure. Uh, because, I mean, infection is a very catabolic process, isn't it? It takes up so yeah. much energy, especially for kids. You know, they run such high fevers all the time. So, yeah. So, moving on. Undernutrition is one side of things, but... There is often a double burden in low and middle income countries of undernutrition. Sorry, not in low and middle income countries. There's a double burden in low income communities, both in low and middle income countries and in high income countries of undernutrition and overnutrition. That's actually a good distinction. Because when I I was doing reading, I had that exact same line from from that same study on the Lancet Commission. But it specifically said double burden malnutrition in lower and middle income countries i never actually thought of it as being in communities so it's not to say that it's just in absolutely i I think latin america sub-saharan africa yeah exactly and exactly in southeast asia things like that um i think more and more 
uh, referring to a topical thing that's happening with the, with sort of worldwide pandemics and things like that, the, the lines between global and local health are going to be blurred. And I think this is perhaps one of those areas where we where it, it has already happened, where, it, you know, the, the blurring of the lines is um, already quite significant. So malnutrition, we can sort of look at it as a complex disease with all over and undernutrition leading to a sort of final common pathway. And there are several observations which implicate shared disease processes in over and undernutrition. So things like for example, early life undernutrition increases the risk of obesity in later life. It increases the risk of adult metabolism, of chronic inflammation and gut dysfunction, and excess energy and sort of macronutrients. So when we when we say macronutrient, we mean things like carbohydrates and proteins and fats. Um, intake is often coexisting in children with micronutrient deficiencies. So that's why I really liked how clever you were for when you said lack of adequate nutrition intake for what they need. So obese children who don't get all of their food groups and their fresh fruit and vegetables are very much undernourished from a micronutrient perspective as well. Yeah. So how many children do you think, Farai, in the world suffer from stunting, which is something that happens when you're chronically undernourished? Is it not 23%? Oh, I don't know how many that is. Do you have a number? No. <laughs> no number. No number. Okay, well, 20, six, it may million. Be, six million. Um, it's quite a lot more than that, actually. It's about, yeah. it's nearly, in 2018, it was 150 million, 149 million. Well, nearly yeah, 150 million. Yes, yeah, six million is um, quite optimistic. I like your optimism. I like your optimism. Maybe we'll get to six million. That's the goal. We'll get to zero one day. You know, that is the goal. But yeah, so even though there has been a downward trend in stunting, 149 million is still a pretty big number. And the UNICEF believes that this is still too slow. So in 2000, there were nearly 200 million. And in 2018, 149 million. So in in effect, we've sort of reduced that by about a quarter. But then just think about what else has happened between 2000 and 2018, you know. And it feels like we could have made bigger, bigger strides. Yeah. Um, and if I had to ask you to guess, Farai, which sort of subset of countries has made the greatest difference to their stunting rates? Would it be high-income countries, upper-middle-income countries, lower-middle-income countries, or low-income countries? I'm going to go with lower-middle-income countries. Lower-middle-income. Okay, okay. Very close. In fact, it's actually upper middle income countries that have demonstrated the greatest, yes, greatest decrease in stunting between, so the period that um, UNICEF refers to is between 1990 and 2020. So that's over 30 years. So upper middle income countries, they had 31.8 million children in 1990 who were stunted. And in 2020, they had 6.3 million children. Can you give an example of any of those countries? So Brazil, for example, would be an upper middle income oh, yes, yes. country. Um, and Thailand would be an upper middle income country. Malaysia. So, yeah, I think a, a lot of the countries that I've had, I suppose, development booms would be would be upper middle income countries at the moment. That is partly true, but 
something that's also been highlighted by the Lancet Commission is that it's not just about an increase in GDP and development goals, but it's what's more important is a commitment by politicians and governments, as well as good health policies and effective strategies. Um, even though these aren't part of the upper middle income group, but the, um, a good comparison that they show is Nigeria and Ghana. These two countries both have a similar GDP of 1,250 US dollars per capita. However, if you look at their rates of chronic malnutrition, there's quite a big difference. Whereas Nigeria has 41%, Ghana has 29% rate of chronic malnutrition. So showing oh. that it's not just about having more money, but it's about how you spend that money specifically. This actually segues really well into what I want to talk about, which is the effect of income inequality on this. You're absolutely right. It's not just about gross domestic product. And there have been studies of the impact of national wealth and income inequality. And they define income inequality by this statistic known as the Gini coefficient. And that's G-I-N-I. Ah, okay. This is not something that I'd ever come across before, actually. Um, So it was actually really interesting for me to read that um, the Gini coefficient was positively associated with all-cause and communicable disease mortality for males and females across all age groups in children and adolescents in low- and middle-income countries. So this is across 103 low- and middle-income countries. And as you can imagine, there will be a huge range of you know, gross domestic products across these countries. And yeah, it was, it, it, it's, it's very startling that it's the income inequality as opposed to the actual income level, which seems to make a huge amount of difference. The data also suggest that a reduction in the Gini coefficient would be associated with a reduction in all-cause mortality in males and females in addition to the benefits attributed to by increased GDP. So it's, like Farai alluded to, it's not just about gross uh, income levels, but it is specifically about also trying to reduce inequalities associated with um, increasing wealth. To me, I think it makes, it sounds, I think it sounds very obvious that you think that by reducing inequality, that everyone benefits across the across the country, across the world, where you don't have to um, people don't become dependent on welfare and government to take care of themselves. People are able to empower themselves. Their children are able to get educated. Having higher education leads to in itself better income. The um, the cycle of malnutrition or poverty is depleted. But I think we're not going to be able to answer the question here. But why is it that it's not something that's targeted was it rather than yeah income inequality yes yes i i think you're absolutely right i think um so there's um there are there's a very sort of um famous book in public health circles in the uk called the spirit level have you heard of that at all no i have no idea what the spirit level is what is that so the spirit level i think is an instrument that's used by builders to see if like a wall that they've made, for example, is, is, is straight. So they put it on and it's like a level of a, of a, of a spirit and they look at it and then that you can see from the meniscus whether the whatever you've built is straight or not. But the, the book essentially just talks about how inequality is the sort of root of 
a lot of public health struggles, as it were. And it's a very, very interesting read. So for listeners that want to look into this inequality thing a little bit more, I would highly recommend the, that, that book. So looking a little bit more at numbers for overnutrition, for example, overnutrition is definitely a problem in high income countries, although absolute prevalence of um, obesity is still higher among the wealthier uh, sections of lower and middle income countries and high income countries. Obesity rates are growing much, much faster amongst socio-economically vulnerable populations, including indigenous populations. And data from the US and England shows that the prevalence increases with social disadvantages and amongst ethnic minorities. In fact, the number of fried chicken shops in a neighbourhood is often used as an index of deprivation in the UK. Is that something that you can relate to, Farai? I was going to say that I've seen that before. I've heard them speaking about it. I'm just trying to think if I can, if I can convert that to my own local context. Yeah, exactly. So There's what... a lot of KFCs around. A yeah. lot of KFCs, like on every corner. McDonald's is also popping up more and more every day. They've started to you know, go into... Initially, something I found quite weird, but interesting, but for some reason it made sense. I don't know, maybe I'm stuck up. But was that... So KFC and um, another fried chicken shop in South Africa was chicken licking. were found like all over, but it's more catered towards black people. And black people historically are those who are who operate in the lower socioeconomic um, status um, zone. And also now yeah, um, are starting to be more a part of the high-income part of society. But if you compare that to McDonald's, McDonald's seemed to only be available in more urban areas. Whereas in the past, I would say 10 years, it's starting to migrate into places that it wasn't previously occupying. So I don't know if that was strategic or what that's about but yeah i find that very interesting i see i mean it's really interesting isn't it i mean just the sort of slightly digressing listeners please do indulge us and um, <laughs> it, it so it's very interesting that something that used to be a sign of social mobility so when my parents were young for example and they grew up in india and they were both from sort of um not very well off households they you know fast food would be really expensive you know a huge sign of a social uh, capital and a social mobility and now it's the it's the opposite it's the kids who are eating the organic yeah. eggs and then the you know sort of farm to table meat in india and um having the like quinoa and the chia seed porridge in the morning in sort of uh, wealthy indian communities that are considered uh, i think it, i think it's just very very interesting and it sort of has um it shows us how sort of capitalism and is is involved in the in how accessible nutrition certain types of nutrition are to certain communities so yeah there we go our two cents on on uh, socio ideologies there for you listeners i'm actually sitting here a bit stunned <laughs> i think that's how you can tell that this is not pre-scripted as much as we do try to plan Yes. My mind is actually doing cartwheels right now, trying to understand what's wrong with society. Gosh, yeah, but, I mean, that, that's what we aim yeah. for with 15-minute medicine, isn't it? Just absolute stunning people into silence. Um, so with the early, early childhood interventions, 
So mm-hmm. again, this is the second episode where we're looking specifically at nutrition, and the first was about education. But I think it's important not to neglect that one, that these two are interlinked, and they're building each other, and improvement in the one naturally leads to improvement in the other and vice versa. But also the opposite. If there is a lagging behind of the one, then the other is going to lag behind as well. More specifically, looking at issues of malnutrition. If someone is malnourished, then they're not going to be able to concentrate in school. In general, that also um, shows that most likely the family does not have enough money to take care of the child to send them to school. Just that sort of thing. The other thing is that besides these two linking directly to each other, is you cannot forget about the family structure. Mm. And a lot of the time we speak directly about the mother and how if the mother is fine, then essentially the child would be fine. And that's definitely true. If the child, if the mother is well-educated, or not even well-educated, but if she knows simple things like knowing that it's important to stimulate a child, speak to a child, sing to a child, she knows when the child is sick, she must mm-hmm. take it to the hospital, she knows that feeding the child regularly is very important. All of these things lead to better outcome. But this is neglecting the fact that this is a lot of pressure put onto one person to determine the health outcomes for the child. And although it is definitely possible for a mother to raise a child and to raise a child well, it's also taking away the importance of having a good a good family structure or a good support network and the role that others must have in raising a child successfully, taking away some of the, the stress and the, the work that a mother has to do because definitely a father can do these things just as effectively, I don't know, but they can definitely play a role in making sure that a child grows up well. So essentially it's important that you don't focus all of this effort, all of these interventions purely on mothers. What's more important is getting a supportive network for children, which involves a family unit or a group of caregivers. So fathers should not be neglected and they should be encouraged to take part in their child's health. Uh, an important example, I think, is looking at, I've worked in two different scenarios. I'm not going to name which is which, but when I was doing obstetrics, where in one scenario, it was encouraged that fathers actively take part in in the childbirth process and that they're there supporting the wife, being able to either sit there as they give um, normal vaginal birth or being in, present in the theater when the mother is, is giving birth. Whereas in another scenario, the father would be kicked out and told to wait somewhere else. And that it affects how we think about the role of a father in ensuring that a child grows up. Is it purely down to the mother? No, although she is important. And I definitely think that she's the most important factor. But the father can definitely be equally supportive of whatever the wife needs. And if time, if it permits, then definitely also being even more involved. Yeah, that's... That's, That's just something I think it was important to note. Absolutely, because this is an, a simple question of, again, as we're sort of continually alluding to during our two um, podcast episodes in the series, this isn't just simply a question of picking one thing and, uh, for example, just educating people about, oh, fried chicken isn't very good for you, whereas apples are better for you. 
You know, it's it's about engaging with the socio-cultural economic barriers that prevent adequate nutrition in early childhood, which are numerous. And to tackle them involves several strategies, including engaging with family structures, like Fry alluded to. So, are there any interesting interventions you've come across, Fry, for early childhood nutrition? So, in general, I think South Africa is very good. I think you have told me this before, but something that is across the, working across the country is the Road to Health card, which is essentially a, it's a document that a mother is given, a caregiver is given, from the time that the child is born. And essentially, it just lays out a few guidelines on the first few years of the child's life, when they can go and get immunizations, it's recording if there's any early um, illnesses taking place, the important birth history, birth weight, birth length, head circumference, mother's HIV status, that sort of thing. And this is very good. The mother carries it around whenever she goes to any healthcare facility, just so that there's a record of what the child has been through, hopefully nothing, and what interventions still need to be taken, such as ensuring that they remain on course with their vaccinations, um, vitamin A supplementation, that sort of thing. So that's a very important widespread intervention that has been going on for very long, not just in South Africa. I know in Zimbabwe they also have it, but I'm not oh, yeah, quite definitely. sure across the world. Yeah, we've got, ours is called the Red Book. The Red Book. The Red Book. It's <laughs> very formal. Yes. <laughs> uh, sort of sounds like a Harry Potter spell book, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, um, but there was another very interesting intervention you were telling me about um, with regards to empowering mothers um, and optimizing um, nutrition. Yeah, so on the concept of, of preventing childhood stunting, a lot of the listeners might know a famous author, famous in not just South Africa, but in across the world, I would say. Her, her books have been translated into over 10 different languages. She's Dr. Kopano Matwa Mabaso, and she's the author of among many different books of coconut spilled milk, um, two other books, I just can't remember their names. But she, after studying her degree, she published her book, her first book while she was still in medical school. She completed her internship, did her postgraduate studies at Oxford, and now she's, she's heading up an NGO called the Grow Great Campaign. And this looks at the issue of stunting it's mobilizing South Africa towards the Sustainable Development Goals for stunting by the year 2030. What's very important is that she uses community healthcare workers to go out and educate mothers on things that they can do to ensure that they are empowered and they know how to take care of their children. And it's not just giving them all these special formulas, but letting them know that there's, there are foods that are available to them in their households that are cheap that they can use amongst many different things. Uh, I listened to an interview with her the other day and what I really liked and that she pointed out is that initially she was being heralded as the first of her kind to do something like this in the general public but she quite rightfully pointed out that she wasn't the first to do this and there are a lot of people that have paved the way and that it is currently these things are taking place in our government facilities but she's adding to the to the effort to do this and i think it's important that's when you speak about the collaboration between public and private um, institutions 
to aim for these goals together and yeah through a collaborative effort then through these partnerships. goals yeah, are absolutely. very um achievable what do you say through partnerships yes yes absolutely um and i think you've highlighted there really really well what we were trying to emphasize at the start of the podcast which was that we need to have a a broader lens when we conceptualize this issue take a, a life course approach and that means approaching mothers and you know empowering women and starting from there i think if we're just going to try and get a bit geeky for a moment, I'd like to explore one particular consequence of malnutrition, which I think is really interesting and emphasises the need for a such a life course approach. There are, of course, other very, very important consequences of low birth weight in particular, things like increased infant mortality and morbidity. So there's lots of studies um, which look at that, which we can include links to poorer education outcomes, which of course links in very well with what we were talking about in our last episode and reduced immunity, which we talked about at the start of this episode. But the one that I wanted to refer to specifically, because I find it very interesting, is the um, developmental origins of adult disease theory or the Barker hypothesis. Is this something that you've come across, Farai? Yes, it is, but I'll let you get into it because you seem like you're ready to go. Oh, wow. So, fun fact, um, Barker came up with this hypothesis whilst he was at uh, Southampton. And guess where I am in England right now? In Southampton. Um, So, essentially, listeners, um, Barker was an English doctor who observed um, through large-scale observational studies that regions in England that had the highest rates of infant mortality in the earlier the in the early 20th century let me start again regions in England that had the highest rates of infant mortality in the early 20th century also had the highest rates of mortality from coronary heart disease decades later and because the common the most commonly registered cause of infant death at the start of the 20th century was low birth weight These observations led to the hypothesis that low birth weight babies who survived infancy and childhood might be at increased risk of coronary heart disease earlier, uh, sorry, later in life. And this link between low birth weight due to growth restriction as opposed to sort of prematurity related low birth weight um, was found to be linked to coronary heart disease later in life in a number of regions in England and in lots of other countries, including India. And there's also a link that uh, between reduced size at birth and other diseases that are known risk factors for coronary heart disease, like high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and also metabolic factors like insulin resistance. So what some people might call a pre-diabetic state. So there are a number of theories which look at why this is happening. But before we sort of get into the nitty gritty of this, I, I think the reason why I'm so taken by this hypothesis is because of the sort of transgenerational transfer of morbidity and mortality, you know. Mm. Um, it's about the fact that a stunted child makes a stunted mother who then has a growth-restricted baby who, even if they don't grow up to be stunted later in life, develops all sorts of complications later in life, you know. And that's why it's so important to look at it not just from a... Um, one person, one generation being affected, point of view, exactly, just works across generations. What do you think about that, Brian? 
I think first of all for him to have come up with that the, that hypothesis was remarkable. Mm. Right, the starter. <laughs> yeah, with all the technology that we have, I I don't see us coming up with hypotheses. Although I really do want to explore this link of the the fried chicken, the KFC chicken chicken, um, <laughs> and its situation. I do want to explore that if it's yeah what what it actually means. But yeah, it's 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 beyond interesting, and it's terrible that yeah, it's not a, that these diseases aren't a once-off, and that those people that are unfortunately exposed or at a high risk, the the cycle continues and it perpetuates itself, and it, like it like a lot of things in life, it may not even be your own fault. That you might just have been given a bad card early on in life. Mm. Mm. exactly exactly i don't know if you've ever seen the cartoon of sort of exactly what you said there's this cartoon where there are two babies um one of them is a is a is a black baby and one of them is a white baby and um the cartoonist is trying to say that you know we we all don't have equal starts at life because even though the length they're both on a racetrack and even though the length of the track is exactly the same and there are no other sort of obvious um, hurdles in the way um the black baby is is um has got like uh weights you know chained to their legs and stuff so you're absolutely right people don't have the same starts in 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 life at all and the point that we're trying to make here listeners is that that the start that someone gets in life might be influenced way before they're even conceived um which is sort of mind-blowing so yeah the theories that people were looking at to explain the mechanism mechanism for the Barker hypothesis were things like programming, so epigenetic modifications in response to malnutrition inside the uterus. So when the fetus is exposed to a lack of nutrition, the actual genes, you know, don't change, but the expression of those genes is changed to make the phenotype thrifty. So the phenotype of the fetus adapts to the low availability of nutrition, and they hypothesized that this phenotype then carries over into into when the child is born and becomes an adult, which puts them at increased risk of things like insulin resistance um, and high lipid levels, things like that. But there are actually some interesting theories which suggest that this is not related to uterine environment at all, because, for example, some studies have found that there's lower birth weight in the offspring of diabetic fathers and fathers of low birth weight infants who were not diabetic at the time of the birth of their child had a nearly twofold increase in the risk of developing diabetes later in life. So there's something there to say. It's not just about uterine environment, you know. It's it's yeah. like you said for I earlier, family structure. Perhaps there is something so inherently sociocultural in these families which puts them at risk of developing adult disease later in life, something that manifests both in low birth weight in their babies, but also in um, increased risk of cardiometabolic disease later in life. So yeah, that's a, that's a bit of nerdiness right towards the end of the podcast. But just to wrap up. I just wanted to, to wrap up, as you're saying, so what is our role as doctors, in essence, in these early childhood interventions? This is a very interesting question. I think I'd have to go back to what you've mentioned at the start of our first podcast, which is that we need to work together in multidisciplinary teams. You can't have these boundaries between this is my 
this is what I'm concerned with as a doctor, whereas this is what you're concerned with as a, I don't know, a, a policymaker, for example. You need people to take an interest in this. And doctors have powerful platforms across across the world. And I think if this is something that people feel strongly about, then they should take every opportunity when the conversations come up, even if they're not making the conversations happen themselves, to advocate for opportunities for children to have good starts in life. I know that's a very nebulous answer, but (laughs) when these conversations are happening, I think it's important not to say, this is not my remit and I'm not going to speak. I think if you happen to be around when when a conversation concerning any of these factors is taking place, then I think we have a responsibility to speak. Yes, I I agree. The other thing is, obviously, as the pediatrician, a general doctor, a nurse also as well, the importance of educating parents and other caregivers. So as much as we, we, we think that things are general knowledge, it really isn't. It's common sense. It's not. We should never take that for granted. And getting angry at the caregiver's parents is not going to help. We need to educate them. Gosh, the yes, yeah. We need to be at the forefront of implementing curative preventative and health prevention interventions as we see there's many different points in this that there's an opportunity for interventions to be put in place so starting off at getting mothers to book their pregnancies early ensuring that they are um, they're having um, antenatal supplementation folate um, folic acid and iron ensuring that they are giving birth in a facility and the child is being born in a sterile environment ensuring that from day one they're getting proper nutrition basically exactly what you're speaking about exclusive breastfeeding stimulation from day one moving forward to complement um, complementary feeding all of these things immunizations the list it doesn't stop and as doctors we are we are constantly in contact with the child early on in life and and the mother who is giving birth about to give birth and the the opportunity for intervention is always there so it's always even if you think that the mother knows even if she's been told multiple times but to continually reassess their understanding and like i said uh, my mistake but not just the mother but all the caregivers involved mm-hmm. getting the fathers involved in care the opportunity is yeah like you said at the um at the beginning of this specific part um the part two of this episode that within the first five years of life you can determine a lot about a child's trajectory throughout the course of the rest of their life so we shouldn't lose that opportunity no and obviously and obviously involving other sectors we can't do it alone so getting ngos governments yeah teachers everyone getting involved and ensuring that children get the best opportunities available to them i am in agreement (laughs) I'm glad that we are in agreement at the end of this discussion. <laughs> we won't be a big problem. But yeah, that brings us to the end of this two-part series on early childhood interventions. We incredibly really enjoy conversations like this and really gives us excited. And I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this. Incredibly thank you for joining. Not at all, my pleasure. And as always, this is 15 Minute Medicine. We try to make medicine as simple as possible. But not simpler than that. Please like us on Facebook and Instagram. 
as was Twitter. We sometimes forget to mention that. And please share our podcast with a friend. Until yes. next time. Thank you very much, everybody.